Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. And today we're talking about punk rock. This is what you get when disaffected East Berlin teens get a load of the Sex Pistols on British military radio in 1977. In the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, or DDR, everyday life was obsessively planned and oppressively boring. To be punk was to be exciting, to express yourself, to show everyone you weren't having any of the government's planned life for you. But the government didn't exactly like that, and so punks became enemies of the state. The band you're hearing right now, Namenlos, were all thrown in prison after years of being spied on by their own friends, having their homes searched and surveyed, But every time the government came down on the punk scene and tried to put out that little spark of resistance, they only fanned the flames. And they ultimately ended up creating the conditions for the organized dissent that brought down the Berlin Wall in 1989. American writer, translator, and former Berlin DJ Tim Moore ended up in reunified Berlin in the 90s, where he quickly fell into the club scene and met a lot of ex-East German punks. Turns out, they were the ones running the subculture, still, and imbuing it with the same subversive, radical heart that they'd had when fighting against East German repression. In his new book, Burning Down the House, that's H-A-U-S, Tim Moore combines 10 years of research and interviews to tell the story of how punk rock revolutionized the DDR and brought down the wall. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Oh, thanks for having me. So first question, big question. How did punk rock seep its way over the Berlin Wall and into the DDR? Almost every place in, in East Germany could receive Western radio. So there was only one area that was around Dresden that couldn't receive Western media. And they, the East Germans referred to that as the uh, Valley of the Clueless. But so especially in East Berlin, for instance, they could get all sorts of broadcasts. And most of the early punks talk about hearing the pistols on British military radio. The, the military radio broadcast the John Peel show, and people were really devoted to listening to that one. So, I mean, they hear this music coming over the wall. What's the instinct? Why did this punk rock speak to all of these kids in East Germany? Well, the, the very first punk was a 15-year-old girl, and she went by the nickname Major. And she heard 
the Pistols on the radio and then saw a photo of the band in a, a West German teeny mag that her older sister had. And it just sort of spoke to her in a, in a way that she'd never been spoken to before. She talked about having a, a switch thrown inside of her. And that inspired her to then cut her hair into a weird sort of punk style and then modify her clothes. She took the chain off a toilet plunger and put that on her jacket and started making homemade badges with all sorts of slogans on them. And the scene pretty much grew up around her. She influenced her school friends and kids in the neighborhood, and this small core of punks formed. Um, she then went on to be one of the first punks made an example of by the Stasi. But most of the kids, I think it was a, a musical spark. It was typical sort of teenage rebellion. Uh, the bass player in Planlos told me he really loved the Ramones because it was the first time he ever heard a record that had no slow songs on it. So in its infancy, it was very much just typical teenage rebellion. And then they became politicized primarily through the reaction of the police state to the punk scene. Yeah. I mean, what I love about punk then and now is that it means so many different things to different people. And the social conditions in East Germany were obviously very different from those in Britain, for example, which gave rise to the sex pistols that so captivated Major and her friends. So how did those differences shape Ostpunk? Yeah, it became a really sort of uniquely Eastern thing pretty quickly. So obviously the initial spark was British punk. And the British punks, like you said, they were always kind of railing against what they called no future, that they didn't they didn't see a place for themselves in society because of the economic conditions. Whereas in the East, the problem was exactly the opposite. They felt as if their entire life was scripted out for them. They had their communist youth organizations and then schooling and an apprenticeship, mandatory military training, and then eventually put into a job that they probably had no interest in in the planned economy. And so what they started to rail against was what they called too much future. They just wanted to kind of wrest control of some of the big decisions in their own lives. And so that was one of the reasons it became such a powerful force is that it stopped mimicking a Western pop phenomenon really early and started to become focused on conditions in the East. Right. And these East German punks were growing up in a society that was much more regulated and structured than British teens were. So how did they carve out spaces and even find each other. Yeah, they would go to the most visible places in town so they could find each other. Alexanderplatz is a place where they used to hang out and meet each other. There was an amusement park out at Plentavald where they would frequently meet. They would hang out in front of the uh, the Haunted House ride. Uh, and there's a, I heard a funny story from Jana of Namenlos of she was waiting in front of the Haunted House ride and people would walk by and say, hey, get back to work. You're supposed to be inside the ride. But I think one of the things that made the scene so threatening is is that they stood out so much on the street. And that also made it, it made it easy for them to find each other. And early on, before the police came in and kind of banned them from public spaces, they would go to the official youth clubs. They would take cassettes with them of uh, pistol songs they taped off the radio. And sometimes a DJ would, would pop in a punk song, and they'd all storm the dance fire and pogo and everything, and people would run for the hills. Because the DJs, even though they were officially integrated in the system, they wanted to be cool too, and so they'd play something from Western Radio for them. But as things developed and as the, both the society at large and the police came in and cracked down, that's when they had to go into the more secretive spaces, like in these basement spaces that they took over and soundproofed where they could rehearse and have friends over for sort of impromptu concerts. And that was facilitated by the fact that the central parts of these cities were so empty. I mean, there was lots of just barren space in the central parts of all the East, East German cities. And you can go in and grab a, a basement or an attic and soundproof it with egg cartons and rags and just start playing. And people couldn't hear what you were singing. And they were very careful to destroy physical evidence like lyrics on pieces of paper they would burn after they memorized and that kind of thing. 
So at this point, punk bands were cropping up in basements all over the country. I mean, was there a difference between the East Berlin punk bands and the Leipzig ones or those from rural areas? The East Berliners thought of themselves as quite superior. I mean, they thought they were the best bands, but the country in large really liked some of the Leipzig bands. Wutanfall, for instance, was considered to have the best front person in all of East Germany and a guy called Chaos. And then there were also rural punks. The only kind of star in the scene was a guy called Otze from a band named Schleimkeim. That band formed in a pig stall in a farm in the, in the rural south of East Germany. It wasn't really a star-making type of culture, but this guy Otze became kind of the only nationally recognized star of the scene, and he was a farm boy. So how did regular East German citizens respond to the punk bands cropping up in pigsties in their midst? Like, what did Major's parents think of her safety pins in her hair? Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the story. They were attacked, first of all, by ordinary citizens before the police uh, came in and, and cracked down on them. They had um, constant rumbles. Basically, people were physically attacking them on the street. I guess most people in any society go along with the system, regardless of what the system is. And that was the case in East Germany. And people didn't like the squeaky wheels. They didn't like the people who caused trouble. And then, of course, the Stasi threw them out of school or banned them from their jobs and apprenticeships and those basements and squats that these punks had carved out for themselves. So what spaces did they have left? Eventually, they ended up getting space in the Lutheran Church. The Lutheran Church had a unique status in East Germany, and the uniformed security personnel were not allowed to go into them. So in theory, they could offer a safe space where people could talk about taboo subjects. And there were a few kind of activist ministers and deacons who decided to take in outsider groups, including punks. And so from about 81 on, the Lutheran Church becomes the key area where they can do illegal concerts. For instance, almost all the concerts by these bands that were singing stridently anti-government lyrics take place in churches. And right in the main sanctuary, they would often use the altar as the, as the stage for these shows. And state repression is really the reason why the churches became this haven for punks, right? Because starting in 81, the Stasi and the state really started to see a threat in punks. I mean, I think the official tally was something like a thousand punks and then 10,000 quote unquote sympathizers, which is a lot in a small country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 15 million people and 10,000 of them were these sort of activist punks. One of the most surprising things about my early research was to see the level of paranoia within the Stasi about the punk scene. Because from a Western perspective, it doesn't, it's hard to see why kids with bad haircuts would be considered such an existential threat, right? But they, I guess, correctly saw that punk was taking people off this preordained path that they were trying to keep people on, and it was influencing other kids to do the same thing. And so the crackdown was really draconian. The punks ended up serving longer sentences than any other activist groups. There were bands that went to jail for almost two years for their uh, anti-government lyrics. And like I said, people were banned from their jobs and schools, and it affected their families. The Stasi was also really effective at recruiting informants all over the place, not just in the punk scene. But in the punk scene, one of the things they did was recruit minors in a lot of cases. So they would approach 15, 16, 17-year-old kids who they could convince that by working with the Stasi, you were helping your friends. You're going to keep your friends out of jail. You're going to keep your friends from getting an extra beating or detainment or interrogation if you work with us. If the good cop didn't work, the bad cop would come in and say, it would be a shame if your parents lost their jobs or if your sister got kicked out of university. So there was this combination of um, physical brutality by the police, psychological torture by the Stasi, uh, recruitment of informants, and uh, it was a really blanket 
repression. And what does that kind of repression do to the scene? What happens when the state imprisons a movement's core members, its elders, so to speak? Right. On the one hand, the Eastern media never acknowledged the existence of these dissident-type scenes. So in the case of a band like Nominalist, they could be arrested, put in pretrial detention for six months, put on trial, and then sentenced to 18 months in prison, and it would never be written about. So a lot of teens who saw punks and thought, whoa, that's cool, that's something I want to be part of, who saw during that incredible summer of 83 all these massive um, concerts, they often wouldn't even realize that the band a few weeks later was arrested and thrown in prison for two years. I mean, they just they might not have realized the, the gravity of what they were getting into. And I think the second point is that the punks changed the game for all dissident groups because they kind of showed that it was possible to resist and survive. One of the big unknowns in a state like East Germany was what would happen to you if you ran afoul of the Stasi. And the punks basically did the experiment. In most cases, they would refuse to be shipped abroad, which was a common way of dealing with dissidents, and they would serve their term, come back out, and keep fighting. And I think that was a game-changing realization for a lot of opposition-minded people, that it was possible to do it at all. And that then enables the protests to move out into the public eye in the second half of the 80s, and the punks were the core members of a lot of the groups that first went out on the street because, like I said, they'd lost their fear which is where it's uh, possible to create the snowballing mass demonstrations of 89 that actually brought the wall down. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's really important to clarify is that these East German punks and dissidents were not actually fighting for unification or for what happened in 89. They were fighting not to make East Germany more Western. They were committed leftists and anarchists and communists in a lot of cases. So, I mean, what was the future for East Germany that these dissidents were fighting for, if not reunification. Yeah, I do think that's a really important point. I think people confuse the fall of the wall and unification. I think they're one and the same. But nobody involved in the underground political movements of the 80s were looking for unification. In the punks case, they actually sort of rejected the West. Their most important influence was from further east. It was the Polish punks. Polish punks were much further along. They were able to perform in the open. And the political... um, reform movements in Poland were further along as well. So that was a big inspiration for them. And in many cases, some of these legal concerts, a Western journalist would get wind of it and come over and try to interview Eastern punks. And the Eastern punks would uh, tell the journalist to piss off. And I, I've seen in the Stasi reports the, the shock because the Stasi continued to see it as a, a Western phenomenon. And they, even into 89, where they list punk as the single most important problem among youth in East Germany, and yet they go on to say, that it's steered and manipulated by the West, which was clearly not the case. What happened in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the wall is that the people who had fomented the revolution realized they'd lost control of the political process and that they weren't going to have the opportunity to create a kind of independent, idealistic East Germany, which is what they were aiming for. And so if there's any kind of wistfulness, people talk about nostalgie sometimes, this kind of Eastern nostalgia. I think that's a confusing term because people aren't pining for Stalinism. Not, they're not pining for the dictatorship. But I think there is a wistfulness for that moment just after the fall of the wall when there seemed to be this opportunity to do something different and new and create an independent country in their own image. So, I mean, what happened to punks after the wall fell? What was the end result for all of these bands and all of these dissidents who were suddenly without an enemy? On the night of November 9th, 1989, which is the night the wall falls, one of these bands was 
was playing a show. And uh, during the set, the audience is going crazy, and the band can't tell what's happening. They're, they were wasted for one thing. They just didn't know what was going on. They thought maybe they were playing a great show. They finished the set, and everybody swarms them and says, the wall fell, the wall fell. And they broke up the band that night because it was clear that the both the political and musical situation was going to be so different going forward that uh, well, they'd accomplished the one goal and that the, everything was going to have to change subsequent to that. As a musical phenomenon, it pretty much disappeared overnight just like that. And it wasn't because they thought, oh, everyone's going to want to listen to Western music. It was more that what they had been doing was predicated on a political situation that was no longer the case. And then again, when they when they lost control or when they realized they were going to lose control of the, the political situation and that it was going to move towards unification, then the the punks kind of went back into the mode that they knew from the 80s, which was carving out space where they could live the way they wanted to. Yeah. But after the wall fell, the West German response to those spaces and squats was by no means peaceful, as you pointed out. I mean, and it really underlines that these East German dissidents were not working for a reunified Germany. There's a really infamous example you mentioned in the book, uh, The Battle for Mainzer Straße, where a year after the wall fell in November 1990, the West German state sent 3,000 police to forcibly evict a row of buildings in Friedrichshain. I mean, that was the largest deployment of police since the end of World War II, and that was for two days of forced evictions. Oh, yeah. The Western response is true that right after unification, they came in and, I mean, they, they were basically little wars in, in East Berlin as the police took back some of the buildings that um, landlords decided they wanted to uh, to renovate. And I, one of the interesting things for me is I, I was working on the book because it took almost a decade to do all the research and track down all the people I wanted to talk to, is it went from sort of a fascinating story, something that had caught my attention and I thought was really cool, to something that was almost eerily relevant because during that time in the West, we had the revelations of, uh, we had Snowden's revelations of the mass surveillance, we watched our, our the militarization of our police, we saw the violent crackdowns on, on protesters like, like Black Lives Matter and the, and the Dakota Pipeline protesters. And so it went from something that I thought was a cool, interesting historical uh, story to one that suddenly looked to be important in a way that maybe is disheartening because the parallels became striking over the course of that decade. So I think that this concrete example of a grassroots youth movement that had a significant impact on its society is something that's suddenly quite important to have out there. Yeah, especially because their struggles to retain control of their communities, even after the wall fell, resulted in actual change. The West German government evicted a ton of people, it's true, but the resistance ended up in a bunch of legalized squats. And that's where you came in, right? Yeah, I met these people, the, the ones that I know from back then, I met just by coincidence. I I moved to Berlin in 1992. There was this incredibly colorful scene taking shape, and it really reflected the ethos of this Eastern punk scene. Almost all the early nightlife institutions were set up by former punks, and they were creating these really idealistically driven oases. And I think that ethos still lives on today. I mean, people, obviously Berlin's changed a lot since the 90s, but I still, going back and forth between New York and, and Berlin, I still see the differences. I still see a lot more kind of people power in Berlin, and I think that is a, a legacy of the Eastern punk ethos. You still have a lot of clubs today where there's a, they have a political arm and they can rally people for demonstrations really 
Effectively, for instance, you have clubs that are structured as cooperatives where every single person gets the same wage. They just split up whatever they make among all the people who are involved, regardless of what you do there. Uh, when people arrive in Berlin, even now, they go, wow, this place is really cool and unique, and they can't necessarily maybe put a finger on what exactly it is. And I think a lot of it descends from this philosophy of Eastern punk. There is so much more to the story of how punk brought down the wall, and you can get it all in Tim Moore's new book, Burning Down the House. We've also got links on our episode page to a playlist of Ostpunk songs and several documentaries about punk rock in the DDR and the squatters movement in Berlin before and after the wall fell. My parents actually met in East Germany in the 70s and lived there through the 80s, but I checked and they never went to a single punk show. They weren't that cool. We'll be back next week. And uh, I'm just going to let Schleimkeim, the band born in a pig's die, see us out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.